Hey, this is Brian Sammons. I write occasional reviews for thedrunkenodyssey.com, and I'm here to present a replay of a vintage episode of the show, since John's not feeling well enough to release a new show this weekend. On this release, I present episode number 570, from April of 2023, featuring an interview with Kathleen Rooney. One thing I liked about this episode is that they talk about me. Another thing I like is when she reads her poem, Life of the Mind. There's one line that goes, the best philosophers admit they have no idea what they're talking about. I found that quite validating of my unending childish quest to understand everything. I hope you like this interview as much as I did. Every now and then. Sometimes a friend posts a photo of their newborn, and it's all I can do not to type, welcome to hell. Is the fuckness quotient really on the rise, or was it ever thus? Sometimes I stop by the mirror and redden my lips, making myself hotter, though no one can see me. Like Diana Vreeland said, I loathe narcissism, but I approve of vanity. One of the earliest known uses of the F word appears in a 16th century collection of poems by an Edinburgh merchant named George Bannatyne during an outbreak of plague. Is the weather weird today? Is the sky not clear enough, or is it too clear? This year feels especially endless this year. Sometimes I sit and think, but mostly I just sit. Who was it who said that? And was it always true, or only sometimes? Sometimes I wake up and the morning light is like, welcome back to your absurd reality. What might happen if I signed my emails derangedly sometimes? Sometimes I like to do things on my own, which is lucky, because sometimes the cavalry isn't coming. Once in a while, the pigeons undulate across the blue void in such a way that I wish I could join them. What might happen if I signed, still me, unfortunately? Sometimes you can get out a red pen and revise your mood. Maybe most times. Welcome to The Drunken Odyssey with John King, a podcast about the writing life. Tell us all news about a man whose mind and career has careened far and wide and upside down, whose computers are seared with crimes against grammar, whose typographical aggressions are legion, whose words flow into the very mouth of time and more than a few bottles. A man who actually owns a typewriter and perhaps even a soul. And now, your host, John King. Welcome, my friends, to episode 570 of the world's greatest writing podcast. On today's show, I talk with Kathleen Rooney about her new book of poems, Where Are the Snows? After some consideration this year, as a contrarian's contrarian, I've decided that for National Poetry Month, aka the cruelest month, as my buddy Tom once said, I would do something weird and focus on poetry. Why not focus on verse when the state I live in is overruled by a fascist governor who thought bullying the Disney Corporation in the courts would be easy? The populist governor, by the way, has a degree from Harvard Law School, where he apparently learned nothing in a move that he wants to gift to every student in Florida. The opportunity to learn nothing. I hope to have a whole episode about this peninsular mess later on, but in the meantime... Let's focus on poetry, which is not necessarily the opposite of show business. And let's focus now and maybe learn a little from the delightful work and thoughts of Kathleen Rooney. And now, the interview of the day.
Kathleen Rooney is a founding editor of Rose Metal Press, a nonprofit publisher of literary work in hybrid genres, as well as a founding member of Poems While You Wait, a collective of poets and their typewriters who compose poetry on demand and on social media that is so much fun to watch. Her most recent books include the novels Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk and Share Me and Major Whittlesley. And her criticism appears in the New York Times, the Chicago Review of Books, the Brooklyn Rail, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and elsewhere, she lives in Chicago. In her poetry collection, Where This Knows, abstractions are concretized and concrete is abstracted. The Great Enlightenment is over, but we could still remember it unless that memory is an errant postmodern implant. In the kaleidoscopic wordplay of this meditation on the 21st century, Kathleen Rooney exhumes etymology and history and science in her own senses and seeking meaning in a human world that is all but rendered meaning permanently impossible. So thank you for joining me in a conversation on this beautiful doomsday. Beautiful doomsday. Yes. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. I love uh, talking with you about, um, I've talked with you so many times before, so it's an honor to be back. So talking about meeting being impossible. So you just got back from the AWP conference. Can you dish on that a little bit? Because I didn't get to go this year. Yeah, absolutely. I had not gone for three years, like many people for, you know, reasons that need not be rehashed. And so it felt kind of, you know, relevant to the doomsday thing. It felt almost quote, normal, unquote, whatever that means these days. There were thousands of people there. I spent most of my time in the book fair under the brutal, unforgiving fluorescent light selling rose metal press books, but people were I don't know. I mean, I, I usually have a good time at AWP. I know, like anything, there's pe- people who are a little more ambivalent, but it felt really good to be back. I think people just seemed like really thirsty for literature and to buy books and to go to events. The weather in Seattle wasn't too terrible. And so, yeah, I mean, not to not to give you FOMO, but I think it was a good one to be at, I have to say. Well, in my experience, problem isn't that there's a lot wrong with it other than it's overwhelming. Like there's just too much. Yes. It is excessive. And I definitely was guilty of doing the things that I often do at AWP, where I try to be like eight different places at once and fail. But it was fun to try. Yeah, my last one was Portland. And I remember walking to offsite events, not realizing not they weren't necessarily walkable, or at least not like it wasn't a good idea. Like, yeah. oh, you guys plan to be far away. <laughs> yes, I walked to all of my offsites and no regrets, but I allowed plenty of time. It was fun. On Friday night, I went to the Switchback Reading, which is my publisher of my first poetry book. And they were about mm, like between a mile and a half and two miles from the conference. And it was fun. Like the Space Needle was on the way and it kept popping out from behind different buildings. It almost felt like a person like playing peekaboo with the Space Needle. <laughs> it was fun. Well, for listeners who haven't experienced the AWP conference and maybe don't have an MFA, aren't in an MFA program, in some ways, it's a glorious example of networking, right? The only time I've met you, actually, IRL, was at an AWP conference, you know, frantically, like, hey, so great to see you. And then, like, a million other things happened. But, yeah, I got to see you having fun under that glare of the (laughs) fluorescent lights. yes. But also, in its mad way, makes the writing world smaller in, I think, a good way. So, like, some of the most famous writers on the planet are just walking around like they're one of us because they are. Yeah, exactly. And if you know it's what a great parties equalizer. to go to, if you know what parties to go to or what readings to go to, it's just kind of shocking that you could just be 20 feet away from some of your favorite writers who maybe you thought you never would have had the chance to meet. Yeah, and you can depending on where you're staying, you can like run into them at the Starbucks line before either of you have showered. It's like 6:30 a.m. and you're like on Pacific time, but you're normally on Eastern time or whatever. Yeah, it's a lot of chance encounters, which I enjoy. So let's get into Where Are the Snows, which I found just, it does so many things that I like, including it's full of wit and also full of heart. There's a part of me, like if I had to choose, I think I would choose wit if I had to choose only one, but I really don't like having to choose one. Yeah. If I hear, oh, this person has such a big heart, they wrote a big hearted book. I'm like, okay, and I might like it or I might loathe it. (laughs) If there isn't enough wit, I don't know. I'm a Gen Xer, and so there's a certain level of, I don't know, enthusiasm or optimism that I just find unwise. That's my personal taste, and I don't exalt that as what the world should live up to. But I will say that this collection of poems like hit me exactly in the sweet spot. It does everything I want poetry to do, and I look forward to rereading it. Like I feel 
like each poem is this semi-daft conversation that I love to be a part of, even just as a reader. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. So yeah, if I can say a little, I mean, I like your next take and the the wit take. I like both of those things, and I'm so grateful for that compliment because I think sometimes there is that binary of like the head or the heart. And I think when I was writing them, I was definitely trying to use cognition and affect and try to be an appeal to the emotions and an appeal to the mind. You know, it's good to hear that it succeeded, at least for you. And I think just, I don't know, bringing up the X thing, like I I love thinking about generations and I'm an Xennial or an Oregon Trail generation. (laughs) So I've got like a foot, very, very last, last minutes of X and the very first minutes of millennial. And I think I don't know. I mean, I do remind myself that, you know, you got to be careful talking about groups of people and that, you know, generations can be like marketing categories. But I think to me, it's a very Oregon Trail generation book in that regard. So I'm glad. I'm glad you got that. (laughs) Yeah. People my age and people five years older, like, yeah, it's almost like a different generation. So yeah, yeah, these terms aren't always the most helpful. And I don't know. Yeah, I should be careful with that Generation X thing. Like, yeah, I'm an old guy. You're not going to change my mind and just blah. (laughs) Which isn't exactly the spirit that I want to approach the world with. Right. But I was born at the time of Watergate. So a certain level of cynicism seems baked into just who I was at the time I came into the world. No, totally. So I feel like my cynicism has room to play without necessarily just crapping on everything because this book could have been one of despair. And it's the book is fun, even if it's cataloging a lot of problems. Yeah, I wrote it, you know, right in the heart of the, I mean, it's not a contest, but, you know, to me, subjectively, some of the darkest days of the pandemic, it was April 2020 because it was National Poetry Month, which is coming up again. And my friend Kim Southwick always, does a poem a day group for April where, you know, obviously you sign up and then you commit to the challenge of writing a poem every day. And for years, she'd been asking me to do it. And I've been telling her no, not because I didn't think it was a good idea, but because I'm very type A and a try hard and I like to do my best and I'd rather just not do something if I'm not going to really do it. So I didn't want to sign up in the past and then like flake out after writing, you know, 14 poems. So ironically, this time, you know, when she asked in like January 2020, I was like, oh, yeah, I think I'm you know, I'll probably have time. And then, haha, like we had so much time, you know, on full lockdown and just sort of like corny, but true. I think I would have really, I would have done much worse if I didn't have this. I'm, I'm just, I like every time I talk about this book, I always have to mention her and that group of other poets because it truly got me out of bed in the morning and truly in a time where so much was pushing toward despair, it was a very bright spot. And I think per what you just said, I think the fun comes through in huge part not just because of my sensibility and that I like fun, but because it was genuinely fun to like get in the Google document and just like write a poem and know that these like 10 other people were going to read it. And I didn't want to let them down. And I was excited to see what they were going to do. Though I'm guessing part of the fun might have also been letting some type B in. Yes. Because just doing that project means type B is the one that's going to get shit done. And type A is the one that's going to make it great or not great. But if everything has to be great on a first draft, then... right. Type A is going to break down. Yeah. Like, as you said, like two weeks, that seems pretty far. Putting money down. I wouldn't put money that it would last two weeks. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing, too, is like, I think, you know, about the group per, you know, the type B, I think what was so helpful is that we, you know, it wasn't like a workshop group. We weren't giving feedback or critique, even constructive. It was purely just like praise and encouragement because we all knew at that stage that we were just doing it. Like, we're just generating like revision will come later. Perfectionism, if that's in you, will, you know, not rear its head to further in the process. And so, yeah, it was fun to just like get in there and goof around. Which I think we need. And for newer writers out there who maybe are feeling intimidated by capital L literature, it's okay if the work is bad sometimes. Yes. It is. I mean, that's an assignment I like to give when I teach reading and writing poetry at DePaul, like the first assignment, because it's a super basic intro, you know, maybe you've never written a poem in your life kind of class. And so I say, write the worst poem you can. Like the first assignment is to write just like a totally crappy, like appallingly awful poem. And what's amazing is because it takes the pressure off a lot of their poems are, you know, predictably not bad. They're actually super good because they're not embarrassed and they're not looking over their shoulder. And actually, it kind of encourages people to swing for the fences, maybe the wrong fences. Like, I'm going to hit the best foul ball. (laughs) And it's like, actually, by accident, it's really just a matter of, okay, it went five degrees that way instead of the other way, which means it's actually in play. Like, that was actually a pretty great hit, which I think is also an important 
thing to value is the ambition of taking that swing. Yeah, I have a hard time writing bad work. I have a very easy time writing nothing. I'm a yeah. master at that. But when I set out to create a bad example of something, it always turns out so funky and fun that I'm like, oh, all right, I need someone else yes. to do this. Yeah, totally. So I presume the doom of the time maybe helped influence the themes of the book. But I also am really curious because this really does feel like a wonderful book of poems that speak to each other. It's not simply, here's my latest, which is, is acceptable. That's fine. I have no reason to criticize that. But I love poetry books that feel like a full poetry book that do kind of cover certain topics and themes so that I just remember the book instead of just remembering like a handful of poems out of the book. So at what point did you recognize that these poems seem to be a book and not simply, you know, a pretty good bunch of poems? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that because I definitely tried to make it very cohesive. So yeah, I think because I write in all genres, I come to writing with perhaps more of a map or more premeditation than some writers, which is not to say there's not lots of surprises and discoveries along the way. But I knew even in late March that I was going to try to write a book because again, per the like try hard good student that is in me, I and the doom that was going on. And once I committed to doing it, and once I kind of saw the way the world was going with pandemic and such, I was like, well, what if I'm trying to do Kim's poem a day group and God forbid I get really sick and have to miss a few days, I better have a few like in the can to like post just to like, you know, I, I think part of it was like anxiety because it was an anxious time. And so, you know, another thing was that, you know, anxiety needs a, a branch to alight on. And so it was good to have a branch to alight that was this and not just freaking out about, you know, dying or Trump or anything like that. So anyway, I, you know, started writing a few in the last like five or six days of March. And that's when I kind of settled on this form, which ended up sort of being like, I think they're definitely poems, but I wanted not to do lineated poems, but also not to do like prose poems, just blocks, both of which are things I have done and love. But I was like, what can I do that's different? And so I sort of settled on this almost like stanza graphs as determined by sentences and sort of like using sentences or even a single sentence in the place of a stanza. So for me, form is really, really important. I rarely change, like I'll often change my content when I revise, but I rarely change my form. I kind of set it and forget it. And so, yeah. And then that idea of almost like Montaigne, you know, famously is sitting down and being like, here's a topic. Like, what do I know? Like, what do I know about X? What do I know about Y? And so I kind of tried to do that. And then I think within that, the, the cohesiveness just showed up with the surprise, which was that every morning or like the night before Kim or someone else in the group who had like, you know, signed up and volunteered, this was all going on in, in a Google Doc. So it was very nicely organized. They would agree to do a prompt. And so you would, you know, get up in the morning and I was usually the first one because I'm a morning person and there would be a prompt in there. So I was like, okay, I know I'm going to do this form. I know it's going to be these sort of like stanza graphs. I know it's going to be sentences, but like, what are we talking about today? You know, and like, there's one that's about smell, like the organ of breathing and smelling is what I call it. And on that day, it was like, write a poem about your favorite body part that starts with the letter N. And I was like, oh my God, my nose, you know, so stuff like that. So I think it was fun to surprise myself, but also try to stay pretty unified. Well, I wonder if you might read The Life of the Mind. Yes. Can you remind me what page that's on? In your hymnal, that'll be page eight. Page eight. Okay. All right. The Life of the Mind. Train tracks across flat land seem infinite, but at a point not visible, they do have an end. For Wittgenstein, concepts resemble tools and they, like tools, can cease to be useful. It isn't tragic. Someone said to me about a photo of Audrey Hepburn, she even looks glamorous reading. I said, now that you mention it, everyone looks glamorous reading. Maybe people who dismiss style as frivolous or jealous. Who does it hurt if I flounce around in my fanciest dress? In 1999, I read The End of History, but the joke's on you, Francis Fukuyama. History keeps pouring out like slurry from a factory that manufactures something besides liberal democracy. Aporia, in rhetoric, is a useful expression of doubt. Will professional thinkers ever abandon dialectical tensions? I doubt it. Remind yourself daily that this is temporary. The 22nd century, who can say the phrase out loud? A friend wrote to me that in Chinese, there are five seasons, not four, summer, fall, winter, spring, and the season in between. 
In English, we don't have a word for that which separates after from before. A little epistemic humility can be worth a try. The best philosophers admit they have no idea what they're talking about. The train tracks of thought can become sclerotic. Regarding beauty reduces inflammation. I can easily imagine the end of the world and the end of capitalism. Can't wait to catch you on the other side, where the blank page holds its breath and waits. So that's one of my favorite moves when the poem reminds the reader, oh, and this is a poem. Yeah. <laughs> and the almost stand-up comedy callback to the train tracks. I also love that bit. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the stand-up comparison because I was definitely thinking of that when I was writing them. I've written before in essays and other places reviews about the structural similarities that can exist between poetry and comedy. And I think in a way, every morning, when I got the prompt and cleared my throat and started to like think, I did sort of imagine myself on a stage with a brick wall behind me and a spotlight <laughs> and a microphone. And I was like, you know, it's because it's very observational. It's like, do you ever notice this about philosophy? Hmm, you know, so it was fun to just riff like that. As if every joke, though, like we're more challenging than most of what happens in stand up. Yes, I think the other thing that I've said in interviews that I like to mention, because it truly was like a formal inspiration is, I don't know if you ever do this, but I love listening to music on YouTube, not because it's the best way for music to be delivered, but because of the comments. And I love going to a song that I like or a song I dislike or a song where I'm like, just like, what is that song? How's it go? I always read the comments because they're so good. Like even when they're stupid and like maybe especially when they're stupid, just like the stuff people will get in there and say about a song is often so just like casually poetic or just like so full of pathos and vulnerability. And I just, I don't know. I like, I like to go there and just have my mind blown a little by what people say about songs. So I was like, what if I just tried to make every line as if not good, then at least as surprising and alive as a YouTube comment? Hmm. I guess I use YouTube similarly and dissimilarly. So yeah. that habit I had as a teenager of always searching for new music I haven't heard that might be interesting. I find YouTube helpful for because of the algorithm. And it'll go, have you yeah. heard this? And I'm like, why no, I haven't heard that. And sometimes it's really fascinating. I still get to keep finding out about new artists whose work I find interesting. And also there are a handful of music lunatics out there who are digitizing like their instrumental albums from the 60s and 70s and I guess the 80s, like the weird funk and jazz and yeah. like almost impossible to categorize forgotten music. And I'm really addicted to that. But I must confess, I really haven't been looking at the comments. So can you give me a, an example of a song or describe a little bit what it is that you're looking at and listening to? Yeah. So, well, I, I love that you asked this question right now because it is March. And just as, you know, March Madness is upon us in the back basketball world. March Exness is upon us in the essay writing literary world. And so this is this thing that I love. And I just I want to spread the gospel far and wide because it's one of the purest experiences of joy I think it's possible to have on the internet, which can otherwise be, you know, as we all know, kind of a dumpster fire. So Megan Campbell and Andrew Monson, who live in Arizona, and um, Andrew teaches an MFA program there in Tucson, started doing this in 2016, where they do a bracket style, right? 64 you know, competitor competition, not of basketball teams, but of songs and essayists. And so they'll pick a category. Like the first year they did it, it was March Sadness, trying to determine <laughs> the saddest song of Anders' college years. This year it's March Sadness, which is one hit wonders of the 1980s. And so they put together the songs that are eligible. It has to have been, you know, something that charted within like a set, you know, time span. And so, you know, we're all picking within these parameters. And there's gotten so popular there's actually a lottery to participate there are so many essayists who want to do it that they they can't all do it and so yeah you pick a song and then you write an essay and most people pick one where they are going to advocate that their song is the best in the category, whatever that means, which of course it's funny because art is extremely subjective. So it's, we all know it's absurd to treat art like something that can win or lose, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, but everybody writes a song. And so like this year I'm doing Cry by Godly and Krem. And actually you're in Florida. I know you're not in Miami, but I, the reason I wanted to write about it is it was at the end of one of my favorite episodes of Miami Vice, which I only watched. <laughs> I was too young when it was, was happening before, but yeah, like when I was getting ready to write it, I'm, you know, I'm on here now. And so I'm just looking 
looking at the the videos awesome um and godly and creme went on to become really amazing video directors right. what's um, the website there for, yeah so it's the I'm, it's, I'm just on youtube for cry now but the march badness is just marchxness.com but yeah it's just like i think you know it's fun like you just learn stuff like i'm, I'm just randomly picking a youtube comment and it's rj McAllister four months ago on my song says 1985 colon still amazing after all these years the video was far ahead of its time and godly and creme with trevor horn producing made a record that still stands the test of time that's kind of cool because you're just like oh yeah trevor horn did produce and you can see in my book a mix of that sometimes it's just like a goofy thing to say and other times it's like a tidbit or like a fun fact or i'm putting myself in conversation with other voices and i think so that's kind of what i'm thinking of well a good friend of mine participated this year brian salmons did use the butt versus lips incorporated and the website doesn't list the authors it just lists the musicians yeah when you go to the individual essays his our names are all on the individual essays when you go to the matches all right well i will definitely check yours out and put a link to it if the links stay active yeah looks they, like they, they should, probably they do yeah they do i know andrew and megan try to keep it as an archive um you yeah, know i loved his essay i read that friday and i i think just we, we don't have to spend the rest of the time talking about march exodus but you know there's 64 songs and they all drop in this like first you know week and a half of march and so it's like i love it because it's like going to school and like you learn about like your classmates or your teammates you learn about the songs you learn about the era yeah i loved his essay because he you know he talked about you know spike lee and you know cinema and his own upbringing and the song and it was just yeah it's his everyone should go to behavior yeah it's good he tragically did get absolutely destroyed by funky town but he put up a good fight well funky town is one of those pop songs i defy anyone not to have a reaction to yes you know if i'm channel surfing on the terrestrial radio and funky town is on i can't go anywhere else until that song concludes Yeah, you got to go to Funky Town. And one of the things I love about these kind of projects is how they take things that should be disposable or certainly, right, as writers of capital L literature, we should look down our noses at. But if we think about how we felt about these songs at the time and the way that they affected us, sometimes there's a level of irony there. Sometimes no irony. Yeah. But I do think music was better in the 80s than now. But I think, yeah, if I can, somebody who's great on that is... You, have you read Mark Fisher? I don't think I have, no. Ooh, okay, recommendation to you and, and everybody listening. He was a blogger in the, you know, kind of golden age of blogging in the aughts and early, you know, 2010s. He wrote this blog called K-Punk. And he writes a lot about, one of his greatest books is Capitalist Realism, kind of going with that, is there no alternative? And he calls it not just in music, but the slow cancellation of the future. And sort of, it's almost like a hauntology kind of thing about how part of what you say I would tend to agree with is like, he kind of says like aesthetically and in many, many other ways, we, you know, a broad we, which again, you want to be careful, have kind of become so backward looking or so regurgitative that it's just like, there's not so much a future as just this like circling the drain kind of feeling. And I think a lot of music to me nowadays, I don't know, it's like being put inside like a tin bucket with a cell phone and just like shaken. And I'm like, I don't, this doesn't <laughs> feel good. And I don't think it's just because I'm I'm getting older because I love discovering new things. And there are still things that I hear that excite me, but I do think it's an interesting trend line to consider. I think it's production. Yeah. I think because there's also the part, the cynical part of me wants to say music was not better when I was growing up. Like, get over yourself. This is right, stupid. Right. I have no nostalgia. Yeah. Or not much. I value the things that were great. I don't need to value the things that weren't great when I was growing up. But I think what really just leaves me cold about contemporary pop music, and we will move on to better topics soon. <laughs> it's auto-tune because I could just hear, without being able to hear any flaws in anyone's voice, means I can't hear any personality. Yeah. And I would always rather hear bad singers than good singers who have cleansed their voices of everything that makes it interesting. This yes. Marquee, well, just yes. a friend, I will listen to that nonstop. He's a terrible singer. Maybe he's a good, bad singer. Maybe it's terrible in just the right way. I don't know. But when I hear a new song, like I'll be kind of into it. And then 15 seconds later, I just feel like someone has coded someone's voice in WD-40. That bucket cell phone sound, I think you were describing. That just leaves, like if there was anything interesting for me to glom onto. And unfortunately, it's possible to use auto-tune 
and for someone like me with tinnitus to not notice. So it's not the use of autotune itself. It's using it for that Teflon sound. Once I heard it for the first time, and they're like, they sucked all the life out of it. Now I can hear it instantly whenever I hear singing on the radio. And I just find that. So I think it just undermines someone's voice. You know, what I love about poets is their voice never sounds quite like anyone else's voice. Yeah, totally. Like that human presence for sure. And I think, you know, to the to the point about like kind of having a little bit of flaw, like I think about that all the time with poems while you wait, the typewriter poetry where we, you know, we're just typing the poems on the spot, you know, doing our best. I think, you know, we always try to do all killer, no filler, but, you know, we make mistakes. And usually unless we, you know, spell somebody's name wrong or do something, you know, catastrophic, we leave the typos there. And most people really get it and appreciate it. You know, I think it can sound a little, you know, again, if you're skeptical or cynical, you can be like, oh, sure, the typos are what make it good. Ha ha. Sounds like an excuse, but it's it really is. You don't it, play. <laughs> yeah, it's... yeah, it shows like a person made this, you know? Well, and the presence of the typewriters gives it almost this arcane sense yes. of magic, which is easy to exaggerate, but nevertheless is a real thing. Twice I've held or co-held a type-in at the Kerouac Project of Orlando, ah, where we cool. fill Jack Kerouac house one of them we fill them with typewriters and it's so much fun kathleen Um, people who maybe aren't experienced writers or maybe are but have never typed on a typewriter because they're not old or don't have a typewriter (laughs) they're like really suspicious and they're like oh yeah it's kind of like it's like a petting zoo and they're like on the other side of the fence and it's like no no like once they start typing it's like a children's science museum they have so much fun so the typewriter itself i want to gently say is part of whatever makes it special or or interesting is yeah these instruments of history that are actually pretty durable and when they still work and depending on whether or not if they're a manual typewriter finger strength is is going to be part of you actually getting the writing done yeah you have to do it like you mean it and there's i think you're totally right and there's a guy who i got to meet last summer the summer before like what is time but Tim Yud, Y-O-U-D, and he's an artist who's based in LA, but he does this thing where he finds canonical writers of the 20th century who would have who and who did do their novels on typewriters. And he'll go, it's kind of performance art, but then it also produces, you know, an artifact. It's just very up my alley because it does so many, it's playful, but it's heavily researched, but he'll take his self and then his typewriter and ideally a typewriter that is identical to or similar to the one that the artist in question would have used and like so he'll go to like red cloud nebraska and type up a willa cather novel or i got to meet him when he was here in chicago and he was doing he's done a couple chicago authors but the one that i i got to hear him talk about was upton sinclair the jungle and so he went down to back of the yards you know the spot in the chicago river called bubbly creek which is still because it got (laughs) so polluted like when you throw a rock in it bubbles up black because they just put so much disgusting Is that entrails. Chicago humor or was it <laughs> yeah. all bubbly before that? No, it's it's Chicago humor. And so, you know, and there's an arch that used to be where some of the, you know, the livestock would go in. And so he just, he, you know, he types on one sheet of paper the whole novel. And I think, you know, there's people who would hear that and be like, oh, what's the point? I think it's a fascinating project. And I think it really takes advantage of all the stuff you just said about, you know, the physical presence and the magic of the machine. And yeah. So anyway, if people are interested in that, I would say check out. He's got a website, of course. He's really interesting. Tim Yude. I bought a typewriter in between the summer after I completed my bachelor's, which is the perfect time, dear listeners, to buy a typewriter. (laughs) Just in case you want to, I need to graduate to a different level of pretension. Yeah. This beautiful, it was, I bought it at a yard sale in Indiana in the summertime, $10. It was a Royal Futura 800 two-tone typewriter. Half of it's this sort of not quite rose gold. The other half is like gunmetal gray. Oh, nice. It just worked and it's always continued to work. And I've had to replace the ribbon. Yeah. I once got to have a brief conversation with John Ashbery where I recommended where he could replace his typewriter ribbons in a stationary store. Awesome. So I got to geek out with him about typewriters because apparently he never upgraded to computers. He just kept with the typewriters. It does change the way you write. So whenever, if I get really frustrated, like if I have the time to write and I just feel like resistant to the computer, like, okay, put the computer away, get the typewriter out. Yes. And I don't mean to sound woo-woo or too hippie-ish because I'm not, but it changes the energy or it changes something about the way I write. And it's it's a manual, so it's... And okay, yeah, I have to press really hard for the letters to show up. So yeah. each, each character like has to be earned through maybe the pain of my fingers, but 
Once my fingers hurt a lot, I normally have a page or two or three that I can feel good about. Yeah. And I mean, it's like anything else, you build up that endurance. And I think too, you know, like the fact that it is a single use machine and doesn't have a screen and doesn't have the capacity to do really anything else. Like if you're using a typewriter, you are typing some writing, you know, I mean, I know there's people who, who sometimes use them musically and there's people who use them to create visual art. So I, you know, respect that. But for the most part, if you're using it, you're typing, you know, something, maybe it's literature, maybe it's a letter, but I think many of us, you know, not to speak for all the poets, because there's like 30 of us, but I think that's one of the things we enjoy is that when we're doing a Poems While You Wait event, it's so different than when we are writing on our own, you know, not just all in good ways, not like writing on our own or on a computer is bad. I would, I mean, that's awesome, but I don't know, I think about all of the people that Tim Yude is imitating or doing homage to, but the thought of writing one of my novels on a typewriter, mm, that would be so hard. <laughs> like I need to delete and I need to copy paste and I need to save drafts, but mm-hmm. I have much respect for people who did and still do that. Yeah, I find my use of the typewriter limited. So any pretension I might have in owning it and using it, I think is minimized by not making it a religion or anything. Yes. <laughs> but it is really fun. And oh, and you can smell the oil of the machine and you're like, ah, and, totally. and also a little bit of, I don't know, 20th century nostalgia for a period I didn't live in. Like this typewriter is way older than me. Yeah. Well, I, I think, fun. yeah, I mean, I think that I, I just really like history and I like the past and I like the things that endure and survive. And so, I mean, like when I'm writing novels, I write historical fiction, not always, but often. And even in my poems, I mean, you know, even in the couple that I've read, you know, I love to find those facts about the first use of the F word and just think of like the cultural history or just the stuff that, you know, made the texture of life prior to us what it was and like how we're always being surrounded by these technologies and textures that we're kind of aware of, but probably not as aware of as the people who, you know, in 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 years are going to be like, oh, people in 2023 did blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I love that. I guess I also feel the sense of nostalgia for building things that could last. Yes. Like the average stuff that you would just buy in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Sometimes you plug them in, they still work fine. Yeah. And I realize like this only works for low tech, not high tech material. But kind of like I prefer music that captured what a voice sound like rather than modified it to the point where it doesn't sound human anymore. Yeah, old school technology sometimes is really fascinating to me. Yeah, me too. And and to pick up sort of like the generational thread, like I'm I teach at DePaul and and now all of my students are Gen Z. And again, you know, with caution toward, you know, overly pinning down a whole group of people, I think it's really interesting how not not that this is unique to them, but they're very interested, maybe because their parents are Xers for the most part, but in analog technology, not exclusively and not maybe like fetishizing it in almost a Gen Xy way of like purity or it's better or like things new suck, but more just like, oh, it's just, it's all in the stable, right? We can like take this horse out and ride it or this horse out, you know, and it's like, we can, we can listen to the mixed tape or we can send somebody a Spotify, but they seem to have like a real curiosity in and like respect for analog, like mechanical stuff, which I think is cool. Yeah. I'm really attached to my iPods, which kind of throws all my theories. <laughs> yeah. <into question. laughs> yeah. But partly that's my tinnitus and I just love having all of my music with me and like streaming, it's like, I don't want to wonder, well, do I have enough bars to listen to the songs that I like? Right. And also I've got pretty bad tinnitus and when I had records, everyone borrowed them and they came back scratched. So fuck all that. So yeah, I think my attachments to technology are pretty selective. So I don't think of you as a nerd because I don't know you that well. Like I know you mostly through your writing and in our conversations, but we haven't been hitting the bars together. But I loved when you kind of have some confessions as a nerd, as you do in your poem, a court game played without long-handed rackets. I wonder if you might be willing to read that. Yeah. And then after that, I can, not to be pedantic, but I'll quibble about being a nerd or a dork because I think that's a distinction. I love personality tests and, and stuff like that. So dropping a pin in that and reading the poem. Absolutely. A court game played with long-handled rackets. Given the kind of dork that I was, badminton was my high school sport. Everybody pictures it played casually, beer in one hand in a grand backyard, but competitive badminton is actually hard. Music is a cosmic utterance. In the gym, we did our drills to Q101, Chicago's new rock alternative. You gotta keep them separated. Here we are now, entertain us. I'm a loser, baby, so why don't you kill me? I wasn't that good. 
Our coach was from China. He wasn't kidding around. We'd skip and jog, gallop and lunge for 30 minutes across the squeaking floors to improve our stamina before he'd let us pick up a racket. Clear, drive, drop, smash, net, forehand, backhand, universal, footwork, strokes, friendship bracelets, Gatorade. I still laugh at the word shuttlecock. As in many sports, there were lessons that applied off the court. Vigilance, preparation, ready position, turn racket back. Who doesn't want to react faster to the shot of her opponent? The way a game can compress time is a kind of interstellar magic. I still possess a killer serve. I reserve it these days for streetcock, badminton in the alley, or the grass by Lake Michigan at Purple Martin Field. Birdies over the net, birds overhead, light feathered objects aloft in the twilight. I used to think, if I'm not trying hard, am I even really trying? Now I allow for the marshmallow fluff of goofing around. My sister played too. We still pose some trouble at doubles. To lose ourselves when the world is stupid and a volley swift as Cupid's arrow. They say the game originated in India and became formalized in the UK, named after a duke's estate in Gloucestershire, but a historical link to this place has never been proved. NASA's fleet of Earth-observing satellites monitors our planet's health from space, oceans, biospheres. They probably don't show when the Olympics get postponed. The shuttle part of the name derives from the back-and-forth motion of the game, resembling the shuttle of a loom, athletics as a kind of weaving together. We shall meet again on the court of play, or we shan't. Either way, nothing lasts forever. And now, a competition about dork versus nerd? <laughs> yeah, so this this might just be a me thing, but I do think the you know the connotations would bear it out to me. No shade to nerds, but I'm just not one. I feel like nerds have a certain drift toward like sci-fi and cons and cosplay and also this, and this might be the more negative connotation, this tendency in my experience to just like go on and on about a thing they're enthusiastic about, whether or not the person listening evinces any interest whatsoever. Like so many nerds will just start talking about Star Wars and you'll just like visibly glaze over and they will be undeterred. So to me, a that doesn't dork. sound like a thing that happens. But continue. <laughs> yeah, well, continue. yeah, a thing a thing I think about dorks is it's maybe adjacent, but it's it's more of like an enthusiasm. Like this to me the crucial thing about a dork is that they're not cool. They're not aloof. They're not like, "Oh, I like badminton if you like it, whatever." They're like, "Oh my god, you guys, like badminton." Ah. And they want to not convert people who don't like it, but just try to find the other people who like it and just like the phrase dork out. You just want to dork out and be with your people. So, I think you know, I'm not super hung up on like semantic distinctions, but I do think of myself as more of a, a dork than a nerd. Although I did a personality test the other day, my friend Logan Barry, who's a great poet who everyone should read. He has this book called Run Off Sugar Crystal Lake, which is like a horror movie of a poetry book. It's, you know, riffing on like horror tropes, you know, kids at summer camps getting murdered and stuff. But Logan Barry, he's great. But he and I both love personality tests like the Enneagram and Myers Briggs and all that stuff. And he sent me just this one from the internet that wasn't anything special, just one of these online quizzes. But it situates you on a nerd, normal, jock, goth axis. Both I and he were jock goths, which I think you can kind of... Hell, from the poem I just read, like I'm competitive, I'm athletic, but I also, you know, am obsessed with death. So it nailed me. Yeah, I think when I was an adolescent, nerd and dork were much closer in meaning. Beleaguered people who were likely to get wedgied. Yes. <laughs> so maybe nerds had more clearer allegiances to things, but both in, suggested a level of awkwardness where today nerds are actually necessarily a minority or tiny or belittled or under threat group. I mean, I suppose some of the time, but generally speaking, there's no bigger movies than Marvel movies these days. Like the nerds have won. Yeah, the nerds won. They're ascendant. And I kind of, you know, to be honest, resent that. Like I'm happy for them, but they've become sort of the new everybody resents whoever's on top. <laughs> Marvel movies make me want to die. I'm fine with them, but I'm a nerd. Yeah. You're living in a golden age. I also don't need much from them so that if they're not great, I'm like, okay. That's uh, true. I'm guessing I would be, I don't know, nerd goth, nerd goth preppy. Is that a thing? Yeah, I think the preppy, I think, is what our normies now, you know, because it, it, it was like one of those quizzes where like you could totally tell where they were drifting, but it was stuff like, you know, simple classic fashion is always tasteful and never goes out of style, which would, to me, be preppy, but got you, you know, normie on this quiz. So, yeah. Yeah, normie seems, I don't know, dismissive or... I know, I mean... Suggest you know. less... <laughs> 
sartorial arrogance than preppiness. Yeah, yeah. totally. And I don't judge other people's clothing, but yeah, if I have to walk around in a, with a t-shirt that's legible, if I'm not in one of my semi-annual ironic moods, then I feel like I'm letting myself down. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's funny, I, I do judge other people's clothing, which is why, you know, in the first poem you had me read, I, I love that Diana Vreeland quote about loathing narcissism, but, you know, being okay with vanity, because I think obviously narcissism is horrible, but vanity to me is a little way of showing that you care and want other people, you know, to get kind of like a little show if they have to look at you. I like the mashup of the, I don't want to say pop music, although it seemed like what alternative smashes of the 90s, early 90s. Yes which seemed closer to pop music or at least in its reach than I don't even know what to describe what's happening with music now other than maybe very fragmented. Yeah, no. And I think I, I'm glad you say that because like, you know, obviously I name check a radio station that's still around Q101, the new rock alternative. And I listened to it and then B96, which was the hip hop station all the time growing up. And I think, you know, those songs like, you know, The Offspring and Beck and like Nirvana. I just, I remember at the time being like almost even intimidated. Like they were so cool and badass. And I think part of it was just, I don't know, like I was a girl and they were dudes and there was this like grungy masculinity. Um, but now when I listen to it from my early 40s and from, you know, whatever generation or, you know, era we're in now, I just, I find it so cute. Like I find even songs like <laughs> Closer by Nine Inch Nails where it's like, I want to fuck you like an animal. I'm just like, lol, Trent, <laughs> you know, it's funny now. It's like, if you're a badass, you would do that instead of wanting yeah. to do that or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're just dorks too. Maybe even nerds, which I, you know, I couldn't see at the Absolutely. time, but now, I'm, now yeah. I get it. <laughs> I seem to recall what Beck playing an acoustic guitar that had a jazzercise sticker on it that was maybe on fire. And it's like, think, musically, yeah. that's what he was trying to do. <laughs> yeah. Like that was a visual symbol of what he was trying to do, which is simultaneously dorky and cool, I think. Yes. Like shouldn't have really been classic cool. Like Miles Davis, that's classic cool. <laughs> yes, hell yeah. But in a rock and roll context, especially for the early 90s when rock was dying, yeah, it's like this is, maybe this is the absolute best we could do is try to come up with a postmodern blues song that kind of lights everything on fire. Yes. That makes fun of jazzercise while recognizing that there's something cool enough about it worth mocking. Exactly. <laughs> And I guess this goes back to just thinking about our adolescence and not exalting it and not diminishing it and kind of appreciating the complexity of both the experience it gave us and the feelings it allowed us to have. Yes. Can we talk about the design of the book? Because also, yeah, doesn't really, I guess it might look like a doomsday book, but it looks like a very fun, cartoony doomsday book. Yeah. Texas Review Press is the publisher. And so, you know, huge gratitude to them. So yeah, the book won the Extra Kennedy Prize. And it um, it's a book, they hold the contest every year. And Kazim Ali picked my manuscript that year. And then they, you know, sent me a cover questionnaire and asked me just a, a few very like mild, you know, low key questions. If there was like anything I definitely wanted on the cover or anything I definitely didn't or any, you know, colors or imagery I wanted to avoid, which I really appreciated. And which is something, you know, I run Rose Metal Press and we had never done a specific cover questionnaire, but we kind of like borrowed that from them and now do that. <laughs> but I was pretty like putty in their hands. I was sort of like, I, you know, I love the way you're books look and part of why I submitted to you is like you know what you're doing and so yeah I'm thrilled with the design and I mean obviously like we're on a podcast but yeah it's so fun it's very like day glow colors like hot pink or magenta I guess you could call it and then this like super like fluorescent highlighter almost yellow and then there's the guy in the groucho glasses in a tie and he's gesturing to a highway which is apparently going to hell and so I think you know things aren't necessarily so great I mean you're like literally or coming from hell. hell yeah or coming from hell <laughs> We want to be optimistic um, yeah you can make your choice there's a road that apparently leads to hell and you you might be on it or you might not but yeah i think it makes it look i think it just captures the fun and what was funny is that they sent me options like the day that they sent this they sent me this option which was kind of alone not variations just like this this was it like just it looked like this and then they never changed it and then a couple of other options that were a little more like blue and subdued and had some different imagery from the book and they all looked great but this one when i saw it like when i opened my email i gasped like i I literally was like, oh! and then I laughed out loud alone in my office. And I was like, that's the one because that was what how it was to write this book. I was just like, all alone, totally isolated, just <laughs> 
racking myself up. <laughs> so yeah. You know, it's a little too complicated for a comic strip, but the coloring and I think also there's some bleed in the typography. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of that in a good way. I'm not mistaking this for a comic strip, but maybe a comic strip humor isn't the antithesis of what's in this book either. Yes, exactly. It's I think it, it lets you know that it's a funny book, or at least it's a book that thinks it's funny. So I you know, it's kind of like you've been invited or you've been warned, depending on your <laughs> aesthetic like a highbrow comic strip yeah yes calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> so i think yeah let's end with what might be a doomsday poem or might be an optimistic poem can you read the act of passing across or through yes which is on page 54 all right the act of passing across or through who would have guessed that i'd miss the bus not like at the stop but riding it at all. As in, who would have guessed that I'd miss the bus this much? I used to have a 45-minute commute by the CTA. Now it's a 20-second hop from bedroom to office. Yesterday on a walk, I saw a couple waiting on Broadway, and a standard 40-footer just blasted past them. Another passerby asked them, why aren't you mad? And they explained the new rules. No more than 15 riders at a time, or 22 on the 60-foot accordion-style articulated ones. Fewer people now bust dishes, bust tables. My nephew, who is five, believes that riding the subway is the funnest activity you can do in a city. I'm not sure he's wrong. A busman's holiday means leisure time spent doing what one does for a living, like when London bus drivers ride the buses on their own days off. That flicker like a film strip when one train passes another in the subway. Pascal conceived the first bus service in 1661. A fleet of coaches, he said, should circulate along predetermined routes in Paris at regular intervals regardless of the number of people picking up passengers for a low fixed fare. Fair to say mass transit is a kind of miracle. Bus is short for omnibus, which means for everyone. Riding the brown line at twilight, gazing right into an infinity of windows. The slowest roller coaster, the coyest voyeurs. What could we enjoy if we weren't ruining things for ourselves? The stacked romance of the double-decker bus, the peculiar hierarchies and rules of the school bus. Who would you most like to throw under the bus? To choose to be a passenger rather than a driver is to check a box marked existential freedom. Reading demands undistracted progress, and there's something unbeatable about reading on rapid transit. Pascal also thought humans bet with their lives that God exists or not. Reason cannot decide between the two alternatives, he said. You must wager. It is not optional, but if you gain, you gain all, and if you lose, you lose nothing. Sometimes the wait for the bus is so long it feels like an exercise in probability theory. The smell of mass transit, a gruesome perfume. If I saw Pascal on the bus, I'd try to talk to him. That's the show for this week. I would like to thank Kathleen Rooney, Isaiah Portillo, and of course our sponsor, Scribophile. Don't forget to check out thedrunkenodyssey.com throughout the week for all kinds of great written content, including advice from Dr. Perfect, comic book reviews by Drew Barth, and considerations of the glory of schlock by our curator of schlock, Jeff Schuster. All right, gang, until next week, put your ass in the chair, keep attacking those keys, and don't swallow the worm yes 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 John pass me the bottle April is the cruelest month breeding lilacs out of the dead land mixing memory and desire stirring dull roots with spring rain Dear listeners, writers, and fellow Odysseans, send your questions, observations, complaints, manifestos, transcriptions of Turkish opera, and whatever else you got to thedrunkenodyssey at gmail.com. Sailor Jerry, only you understand me. A while back, John King endowed the Museum of Schlock and tasked me, Jeff Schuster, with curating the bugger. Each week, I curate one more entry into this proud genre of film. I think. Truth is, I'm really not sure what schlock is, but my writing about it is sublime. Read it every Friday at thedrunkenodyssey.com. Thank you for listening to The Drunken Odyssey with John King a podcast about the writing life. This is your announcer, Lauren Butler.